Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs; the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, "As for me." I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise." Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hello to Hove and to Shoreham and to Oasis. My name is Glenn. If we haven't met before, and it's my great privilege to be preaching to you today on the Psalms, and in particular, we're looking at those first two Psalms, often called the gateway to the rest of the Psalter, the rest of the Book of Psalms.、Uh, let me start with a question: Have you ever been to a party so posh there's been a champagne fountain? Have you ever been to such a such a an occasion?、Uh, I've been to parties that have chocolate fondue fountains. That is hardly the same thing, isn't it? It's a whole whole different league, isn't it? If you go to a party with a champagne fountain. But I've seen pictures. Have you seen pictures? Maybe George Best on the cover of Time magazine. There's a famous photo of him with his massive magnum of champagne, and he's pouring it into the head glass. And all the other champagne glasses are packed together in a pyramid, and The champagne overflows the head glass into the next glass, the next glass, the next glass, the next glass, and in the end, a hundred plus glasses are filled with champagne. But they are filled with champagne from the overflow of that head glass. I want you to have that image in mind, because according to the Bible, this is what ultimate reality is like. God is an overflowing fountain of life. He is a father who has always loved his son Jesus and filled him with the Holy Spirit, and that's been true from before the world began. Before there was a universe, there was light and life and love. Before there was a universe, there was the champagne of God's Spirit being poured from the Father to the Son. 
and Jesus, you might know his name, Christ. Uh, we're going to have a look at it in Psalm 2. Uh, the name Christ just means anointed one, one who has been anointed with the Holy Spirit, filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And you know what the meaning of life is? Some people say that the meaning of life is this really tricky thing and you've got to take a year out and you've got to trek the Andes and you've got to swim with dolphins and, and, and you, you've got to discover yourself and go on a long journey to figure out the meaning of life. The Bible says the meaning of life is actually quite straightforward. There is a God of light and life and love. There is an eternal champagne being poured from father to son. And our greatest privilege and the meaning of our lives is to be packed together like those champagne glasses underneath the head glass, receiving that spirit from Jesus as Jesus overflows, the anointed one overflows to us. And then guess what? Our great privilege is to overflow ourselves and out to the world. It's a beautiful vision, an outflowing God who fills us, sets us on our feet and sends us out into the world to overflow with the same light and life and love. We get that picture here in the Psalms. Uh, have you come across the Psalms before? It's kind of the, the hymn book of the church, 150 songs, right slap bang in the middle of your Bibles. And uh, all the preachers in this series have gotten to choose their favorite Psalms, and I've gotten greedy. I have chosen two Psalms uh, because actually Psalms 1 and 2 traditionally have been thought of as a pair. And you'll see the way that they are a pair. If you have Bibles uh, open, um, I'm reading out of the ESV. That's the, the translation of the Bible that was just used in that video. And you'll just notice the first line of Psalm 1 and the last line of Psalm 2, they are these pairs. They're like bookends and they complement each other. Have a look at Psalm 1 verse 1. It begins by saying, blessed is the man. And then in Psalm 2, verse 12, it finishes with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you get that? Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. Psalm 2, verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we see how the, those two ideas fit together in these Psalms. This is talking to us about the anointed one. Uh, Psalm 2, verse 2, speaks of Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And he, as we'll see in Psalm 1, is ultimately the man. He is the spirit-filled man of Psalm 1. And he's the anointed of Psalm 2. He's also the king, Psalm 2, verse 6. He's also called the son in Psalm 2, verse 12. These Psalms are all about Jesus Christ. And you could not have a better description of the entire message of the Bible than blessed is the man, Christ, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. We'll be meditating on that one message uh, for the next few minutes. Blessed is the man, Christ, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let's go to Psalm 1, and, and we'll see the way that this begins, the whole Psalter. All 150 songs are... I guess they're, they're cordoned off from the general public. Uh, and I get that idea from the, from the fact that these Psalms use the word blessed. Blessed is a gateway word, okay? Um, blessed tells you who belongs. Whoever is blessed is the one who belongs. 
Jesus uses the word blessed in exactly that sense in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5? Uh, from verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And, and then he says, uh, blessed are those uh, who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted. And at the beginning and the end of those blessed, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you get the idea? If you're blessed, you belong. If you're blessed, you are allowed through the gate and off into the kingdom. And here, at the fringes of the Psalms, at the entrance to the Psalms, there's a gateway. Who is allowed into the book of Psalms? Who is allowed to sing the songs of God? And the answer to that question is not just anyone. Not just anyone. It's a bit like if you went to the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden. You know, Not just anyone is allowed to sing along. That's, that's frowned on. If you're in the cheap seats up at the top and you think you know a little bit of Italian and you want to join in with the opera, you'll probably be led out of the Royal Opera House. That is, that is not what they want. You are not allowed to join in. Only certain people are invited to sing those songs and only certain people are allowed to sing the songs of God. In fact, only one person ultimately is allowed to sing the praises of God, only the blessed man. Notice Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There is one man being spoken of here. And if you have an ESV Bible with you, you might notice a little uh, footnote next to the man. And uh, certainly if I read my footnote, it just says the singular Hebrew word for man, ish, is used here to portray a representative example of a godly person. The man in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, the man means a ruler, a representative person. And it's that kind of idea that we, we still speak of today. Um, the man is someone in authority. Um, I remember when I was first uh, dating uh, my now wife, and she's from Northern Ireland. And uh, I, I remember the first time my, fa my future father-in-law spoke to me. He said, uh, your man's quite conservative. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? My, my man is quite conservative. I, your man, your man's quite conservative. I was like, what, what is he even talking about? And my wife had to come in and translate for him. And what did he mean? Well, if, if you're from these sorts of parts of the world, you know what he was saying. He was saying, your prime minister, your ruler, the ruler of your people, your man, right? Your man, okay? That's, that's a kind of a colloquial sense that we even have in modern English. And it was certainly true in Hebrew as well. The man, your man, is your ruler. That's certainly the way that it's used in the Bible. For instance, uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, um, he is the man who is placed over God's people. And certainly the sorts of things that this man does are the sorts of things that a king does, that a ruler does. He, verse 2, delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That is very consciously picking up from Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the king is the one who was meant to meditate on the law of God day and night. So the man is not just any old Bible scholar. This is not just saying, be more Bible loving and reject 
peer pressure. That's so often how these verses are, are preached. It's kind of this idea, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, verse 1. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Resist peer pressure and get your nose in a Bible a bit more. Um, now, that, that's good advice, actually. It's good advice to resist peer pressure. And if, that, if that's what you're taking from these verses, then maybe the Holy Spirit is laying that message on your heart. And that, that is probably a good message. But I don't think it's the deepest thing that Psalm 1 is saying. It's not just saying resist peer pressure and do a Bible study. It's saying there is one person who belongs in the presence of God, one person who is filled by the Spirit, who gets to sing the songs of praise back to the Father in the joy of the Spirit. There's one person who gets to do that. And what's he like? Well, he's a, he's a ruler. He is one who delights in the law of God. He, he has bibline blood, like his Blood is just fizzing with, with Bible. He's scripture saturated. And when you read about Jesus in the New Testament, you, you see, you know, if, if you prick Jesus, he bleeds scripture. Even when he's on the cross, you know, they, they prick him and out comes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's that? That's Psalm 22, actually. And he, he's constantly quoting from the Bible. He has bibline blood. Absolutely. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So what is this man like? He, he is a Bible meditator, one who delights in God's word. He doesn't just advance the bookmark every morning and do his duty as he reads through his scriptures. He soaks in the scriptures. He delights in the scriptures. He meditates on the scriptures and therefore, verse 3, he is like a tree. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So he's like got this green thumb. It's kind of a mixture between a green thumb and a Midas touch. Okay, Whatever he does prospers. Or you could translate this from the Hebrew. You could translate it a little bit more like um, whatever he does, he causes it to prosper. He is not just full of life, he is a life giver, so that whatever he connects with suddenly flourishes, suddenly thrives, suddenly springs to life with the same life that he has. He is like the tree of life himself, a beautiful picture. You know, in the Bible, we begin with the tree of life in the garden, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Right in the middle of the Bible, we see the tree of life again here in Psalm 1. And then again, at the, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, again, we see that the tree of life is back there. And it's this, this sort of, again, this, this picture of overflowing life. And really, when you picture the tree of life, you probably shouldn't merely picture a botanical specimen. When you picture the tree of life, you should picture Jesus, right? Jesus is the one filled to overflowing with, with the nourishing sap of the Holy Spirit. Everything he does is fruitful. And then if you get in connection with him, suddenly he makes you spring to life. You can get grafted into him and suddenly you flourish. Suddenly you thrive. Suddenly you sprout because he is like a tree. Beautiful picture. Verses one to three. Who is Christ? Christ is the man, but he's not just the man by himself. He is the man who is for you. 
He is the man who does not just have life for himself. He has life enough for the entire world. And you come to him, you get grafted into him by faith, you get connected to him, and you share in the same nourishing sap. I am the vine, you are the branches, says Jesus in John chapter 15. If anyone uh, remains in me and I am him, he will bear much fruit, says Jesus, John chapter 15. It's a beautiful picture. Okay, so verses one to three, they're not just saying avoid peer pressure, join a Bible study. Although avoiding peer pressure and doing a Bible study is great advice. The deeper truth is here is Christ, the man, the representative ruler, the one who is a tree of life. Come to him because the alternative is verse four. Verse four, the wicked are not so. Notice we've got this contrast between one blessed man and the wicked, plural. And it's sort of the sense that, you know, God sort of casts around planet Earth to, to look at what we are like. And he, he, kind of, he kind of sorts the wheat from the chaff, as we're about to see, and he sifts. But in the ultimate sifting, there is one blessed man, and then there is just a whole multitude of wicked Again, this psalm is not just saying, be like the biblical people and less like the scoffing people. It's, it's saying there's one blessed man, there's one tree of life. Not so the wicked. The wicked, plural, are like chaff, verse 4, that the wind drives away. You know what chaff is? It's the sort of the dry, desiccated husk around the precious grain of wheat. So the precious grain of wheat is full of nourishment, it will feed you. It will give you life. Around it, it is disconnected. It is desiccated. It is dislocated. And in ancient times, one way that they would sort the wheat from the chaff is that they would, they would do a big harvest and they would put it all on a big kind of blanket. And you would throw the blanket up in the air and the wind would drive away the, the ephemeral, the light, the husky chaff, away blows the chaff, and then that which is valuable, the wheat, the, the, the nourishing food, that which is life-giving, falls back down again. And that, that, that was how they would sort of sift it. They would throw it up into the wind, and they would let the wind blow away the chaff. It's a picture of judgment here, a picture of sorting between that which is life-giving and that which is merely chaff, that which is ultimately perishing. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word perish will come back again in Psalm 2. And this is the, the, the great split in humanity, there is one life-giving tree. You can get grafted into him. You can share in the nourishing sap of his spirit. You can be made to prosper, made to have life in Christ, or you can be disconnected from that tree. And to be disconnected from that tree is to wither. I remember in church uh, last Easter, I, um, I got two roses. Okay, two roses. I, I you know, bought them in Tesco's and brought them into church. And uh, the only difference between the two of them is that I put one of them on, uh, on the car dashboard out in the sun. It was, a, it was a sunny Easter last year. 
And I thought I'd have to leave it out for days for it to wither. I, I didn't have to leave it out for days at all. With, within an hour, it was dry, it was desiccated, it, it shriveled up. The next morning, I mean, it was even worse. I'd kept one in some water, I shriveled the other in the sun, and I said to church, okay, I held the two, the two roses out. I said, which one is a living rose and which one is a dead rose? And they all pointed to the one that had been in water overnight. That's the living one. That's the dead one. And I was like, wrong. <laughs> They're both dead, aren't they? They're both dead. One of them looks a heck of a lot more desiccated, dried, dislocated, <laughs> disconnected. One of them looks a lot more dead than the other. But actually, both of them have been disconnected from their life source. Both of them are perishing. And that's the truth about life, isn't it? You look around planet Earth, and some people look a lot fresher than others. Some people smell a lot sweeter than others. Some people look like they are flourishing like a flower of the field, as Psalm 103 says. But the wind blows, and its, and its place remembers it no more, says Psalm 103. We are all in various stages of perishing physically. We all are. And what we all need, whether you look like a bright young thing or whether you feel your age, what we all need is to get grafted back into the original life source. All of us are physically perishing. But the good news of the Bible, you probably know this verse, don't you? John chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't know any Bible, this is the first verse that you should learn. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever is connected to him by faith, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the message of John 3.16. That's the message of Psalm 1 as well. And we see it again in Psalm 2. But if Psalm 1 is all about botany, Psalm 2 switches the imagery to the battlefield. Psalm 2 Think of the battlefield here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So Psalm 1 was all about the, the tree and being disconnected from the tree. This is all about the Lord and his anointed, the Lord and his Messiah, the Lord and his Christ. They have these cords that are sort of dangling down from heaven and the rest of the world is in rebellion kind of shaking its fist at our rulers on high right and we don't like the fact that there are these cords that are dangling down you see in verse 3 let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us imagine imagine a rope that just comes down from heaven and starts kind of wrapping itself around your waist. Do you warm to the idea? We don't warm to that idea. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? That sounds restrictive. We hate to be restricted. But actually in Hosea chapter 11, it's this beautiful picture of um, the Lord uh, is speaking of himself as a father who is teaching Israel to walk. Have you ever taught somebody to walk? 
And sometimes you even have reins, don't you? You sort of strap the kid in and you put the, put the your clips there and you're holding onto the reins there and the child is stumbling forwards. They stumble, but they don't fall. Why don't they fall? Because of the cords, because of these cords of love. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord says, I am leading you with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. It's the same word as cords here in Psalm 2, verse 3. These cords are meant to be familial, relational, protective, loving, so that even though we stumble, we shall not fall. But as the cord wraps itself around us from heaven, what is our natural reaction? Well, we rebel against that. We're like, no one's going to tell me what to do. Get away from me. This is what we're all trying to do. We're trying to burst the bonds apart. There is a father-son love in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's who God is. God is a father loving his son in the joy of the Spirit. And he wants to wrap us up in that love. And we, we're like teenagers saying, no, get away from me. I wish I was never born. You know, we're, we're just shaking our fists, rebellious against the Lord like that. But verse 4, is God threatened by our rebellion? We make threats. Is God threatened? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is ridiculous. What, what are you guys doing? Says God. What are you, what are you guys doing? These, these are cords of love. I'm trying to teach you to walk. Whatever you feel as restrictive, these are actually the, that this is actually the environment in which you will grow and flourish. What are you doing? What are you doing? The one enthroned in heaven laughs to all those rebels. The Lord holds them in derision. Dear me. Then, if they persist, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Okay? This is, this is the, the fatherly discipline, right? You, you, go, you go through the gears, don't you, in parenting? You start with, now this is a warning, and then, oh, you might get a, you might get a silver sticker. We've got silver stickers and gold stickers in our house. You know, and, and just the warning, the warning that you might get a silver sticker is enough. You know, usually, well, sometimes that, that's enough to kind of help. But you sort of escalate, you escalate, you escalate. And the Lord in heaven escalates. If we will not heed his warnings, the Lord escalates. He laughs, he holds them in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury, saying, and at this point, you might expect in verse 6, you might expect the Lord to now pour out the fire and brimstone of his judgment. People are continually saying, I want disconnection from you, God. You would expect him at this, at this point to say, you want disconnection? Have disconnection. Off you go. You will stumble and you will fall. You, you want to be apart from the life source, then, then you will perish. You, you want to be apart from me, the, the source of living waters, then you will die of thirst. You, will, you would expect him to pour out judgment in verse 6. He pours out something very different. Verse 6, as for me, says God on high, as for me, I have set my king Notice the ESV translation capitalizes king. That's ab absolutely right. We're still talking about the man who Psalm 2 will later call the son, the one who verse 2 has called the anointed one. I will set my king, my anointed one, my Messiah, my Christ, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
And the word for set there is most literally the word for pour out. I will pour out not anger and judgment. I will pour out not fire and brimstone. I will pour out my beloved son, Jesus, on the cross. You know, one way of thinking about the cross is, is Jesus with arms outstretched to the world, bleeding for his enemy. He's pouring himself out with every drop of his blood. He's being poured out as a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the drink offering was kind of a big deal. It's this, this sense of the one who is sacrificed for you is kind of poured out. And Jesus is poured out on the cross. But while everybody on Good Friday saw this as an execution, the Father sees this as an enthronement. This is him installing Christ as king. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 6 is all about the cross. How does God meet a scoffing, mocking, rebellious world? He sends his son to die for us. It's beautiful. I set my king, I pour out my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we've got the cross in verse 6, but then in verse 7, we get the resurrection. Verse 7, it switches. And now in verse 7, we hear the words of Christ himself. Here, 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 is, here is Psalm 2 from his perspective. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, the Father, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So verse 7 is repeated a number of times in the New Testament. And it's always linked to the resurrection. It's this sense that though Christ was poured out to death on the cross, Nevertheless, the Father vindicates him, justifies him, resurrects him, raises him before the whole world and say, says, look, he, he was a righteous victim on that cross. And look, he is the conqueror over sin and death and hell. He's been raised up as the victor. And the Father in raising Jesus from the dead declares him with power to be the Son of God. Now, obviously, Jesus has always been the Son of God. Of the Father. He has eternally been the Son of God. But in the resurrection, there is a special declaration to all humanity. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God on Easter Sunday. So what we've moved from is verse 6, we've got the cross. Verse 7, you are my son, today I've begotten you, is the resurrection. And then verse 8, obviously, what, what should come next after the cross and the resurrection? Then you've got the gospel going to all nations. That's what verse 8 says. Still Christ speaking. Ask of, uh, sorry, this is Christ reporting on what the Father is, is speaking. The Father is saying to Christ, Ask of me, my son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the world belongs to Jesus because the world belongs to the victor over death. Let me put it this way. Death is Lord until or unless somebody beats death. Death is like the super heavyweight champion of the world. Never lost a battle. In billions of bouts, death always wins until the eternal Son of God, full of the Holy Spirit, comes. He is poured out on that cross and it's impossible for death to hold him because he is the author of life, as Acts chapter 3 puts it. And so he rises again to be the victor over death. Before that, death was Lord. 
death held sway. Death was boss. But as Christ gains victory over death, the nations are his inheritance. The world belongs to Jesus. And for the last 2,000 years, we have seen the fulfillment of verses 8 and 9. Literally, nation after nation after nation after nation is brought into the family of God. Nation after nation after nation are places where the gospel of Jesus goes forwards and those who are perishing get connected into Jesus. Those who are rebelling from God start to welcome the cords of love around them. Those who have been running from God start running to him. And nation after that, and, and now here we are in Sussex when, you know, I'm from Australia. I guess many of you guys are from England. You know, many of our ancestors would have been drinking their blood, drinking their ancestors' blood, right? As, as part of rituals that are dedicated to foreign gods. And, and, and yet, you know, the gospel came to this nation and the gospel came even all the way to the depths of, and, and the wilds of Australia. The gospel continues to go out to the nations to bring more people into this family. And it was all predicted in about 1000 BC. That's pretty cool. And so Psalm 2 finishes then with a warning. Here's how Psalm 2 applies all these truths. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Be connected to Jesus. Love. Love your king who poured himself out for you. The one who has always just, he has always only ever wanted to bring you into bonds of love. He has always only ever wanted to do that. Will you awaken to the love that has predated and produced the universe, the love that has been pursuing you all your life? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what is a refuge? I mean, an umbrella is a very simple kind of a refuge, isn't it? It's raining. You put up the umbrella and the umbrella gets wet so that you don't. It's a refuge. Or think of a bomb shelter. Okay, a bomb shelter during World War II. You, you have dug down in your back garden and you have packed it with sandbags and you go down into the ground, into the refuge. The refuge is hit so that you aren't. Who is Jesus? Jesus is your refuge. He takes the wrath. He takes the judgment. He takes the anger of God at all our sin so that you don't. You never have to face any of that because Jesus, like the umbrella, like the bomb shelter, has been your refuge. He's taken the bullet for you. And he says, come home. Take refuge in me. You know, in the New Testament, it describes being a believer as being in Christ. 150 times in the New Testament, it talks about Christians are those who are in Christ. It's a beautiful picture. It's this picture of, of gosh, you can't, you can't get closer than in, can you? Right? It doesn't just say we are following after Jesus. It doesn't just say that we are under his authority. 
It doesn't even just say that we are with him. It says we're in him. You can't get closer than in. But if in the New Testament it talks about being in Christ, the Old Testament equivalent is refuge. All throughout the Psalms, you'll notice how we are to take refuge in Jesus, in the man, in the son, in God's true king, the anointed one. We are to take refuge in him, wrap him around ourselves and enjoy the love for which we were made. So that's Psalms 1 and 2. That's the gateway to the the Psalms. Before you sing any of these other songs, you need to get through the gateway. You You need to figure out who is allowed in, who belongs. Well, the one who belongs is the one who is blessed. The one who is blessed is the one who belongs. So who belongs in the book of Psalms? Who is allowed to sing these songs? Well, the man. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. And Psalm 2 verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that now, as I enter into the Psalms, it's so beautiful. I I am seeing and reading and experiencing and meditating on Christ's prayer journal. That's really what the Psalms are. Do you know that about the Psalms? I mean, many of them, most of them are attributed to David. And even the ones that aren't attributed to David in the Old Testament are said to be of David in the New Testament. And so so here is this representative king, this miniature sketched out anointed one. That's that's who David was in the Old Testament. I mean, he he was a sinner and he was a wretch at times, but he played dress up, didn't he, King David? He was anointed with oil as a symbol of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a miniature anointed one. And he writes these psalms, which are like pencil sketches of the true prayers of Christ. And as David sketches out these prayers of the the righteous king before the Lord, speaking about the wicked and speaking about the righteous, these pencil sketches of the psalms get inked in when Jesus comes. When, When Jesus comes, the eternal son of the Father, He takes flesh and he picks up the Psalms and he inks them all in and he prays these Psalms in our name and on our behalf. So that now when I come to the Psalms, I'm reading Christ's prayer journal. I'm I'm almost sort of peering over the shoulder of Jesus as Jesus prays these kinds of Psalms. Wouldn't it be amazing if an archaeologist said, we've just discovered a prayer journal from Yeshua (laughs) You know, from Yeshua of Nazareth, we found this prayer journal. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to read that? Wouldn't you want to know what the prayer life of Jesus was like? Well, we've got it. It's right here at the heart of our Bibles. We can crack it open. And in the name of Jesus, we can start to take these Psalms onto our lips. And so I just want to finish with, with two applications for us all. Um, first application is, I think we need to, um, we need to relate these psalms to Christ. As you read through the psalms, always be relating these psalms to Christ. Um, And one way you can do that is by just figuring out who the characters are in each psalm. Beautifully, Psalms 1 and 2 give us all four characters that you're going to meet in the rest of the Psalter. In the rest of the Psalter, you're going to meet God, the man, the righteous king, the anointed, the son, the wicked who rebel against him and the righteous who take refuge in him. 
Those are the four characters who you are always going to meet in the Psalms. You're going to meet God Most High, the King, the Lord, the Righteous Son. You're going to meet the wicked who rebel against God and his King. And you're going to meet the righteous who take refuge in that Son of God. And sometimes the Psalms will be, it'll be the, the, the righteous down here complaining up there about the wicked. Or sometimes it will be the, the king praying to his father about the wicked. Or the king praying to his father uh, about the righteous who he loves in the land. It'll be some combination of these four characters. But as you read through the Psalms, just pay attention to the ways in which these four characters testify to Christ. Because from Psalm 1, from page 1 of the Bible, these things are testifying to Jesus. So, application number one, let's be relating the Psalms to Jesus. But then application number two, let's make sure that we are related to Jesus. That is, that is the concern of these Psalms, isn't it? To be related to Jesus. And as I bring things to a, a close, I, I just love us to meditate on these verses together. And you might feel in the flesh all kinds of dislocation and desiccation and disconnection from Jesus. You might feel like you've been running away from those cords that are dangling down from heaven, trying to hold you tight. You might feel like you're running from God the whole time. And these Psalms are telling you, no, no. Get grafted in, get connected. Welcome the cords of love. Run to God, not away from God. Take refuge in Jesus. And so I'm just going to finish by, by praying a prayer. It's a prayer that you can pray if you want to come home to Jesus and know his love for the first time. It's also a prayer that you can pray if you've known Jesus for decades and you're feeling a little bit dry, a little bit desiccated, and you want to know by the Spirit your, your, your true Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. So why don't I pray for us? And I'll just say these words to Jesus and, and you can say your amen to them at the end. Dear Jesus, you are the tree of life. Give me a life and blessings. Lord Jesus, you have cords of compassion and ties of love. Help me to welcome them. Lord Jesus, you are poured out on the cross to be my king. I obey you. Lord Jesus, the scripture says, kiss the son. Help me to love you. Lord Jesus, you are my refuge, taking the judgment to keep me safe. Lord Jesus, I take shelter in you. Help me to know your closeness, your refuge and the filling of your spirit.
Amen.